Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Everyone, it's Roxanne Durhage with Authentic Living with Roxanne. So today I have someone, um, you know, Tatiana and I connected, I, I'm going to say about a couple of weeks ago, and um, we had a quite a conversation that I was quite impressed with. And she's uh, been a high level executive and a female that has, um, I would say, uh, lived a life that is quite fascinating and She's the CEO of her company, um, CEO being C Chief Expression Officer, which I love uh, that title. So Tatiana, thanks so much for coming on today to spend the time with my uh, listeners. Hi, Roxanne. I'm so excited. Thank you very much uh, for having me here. It, I had so much fun last time we connected, so I really look forward to our conversation today. Well, and I, you know, we probably could have just hit record then, you know, because we we talked about so many things and to replicate the same conversation, um, you know, is difficult, but I'm sure we'll get a lot out of things today. So let's talk a little bit about you. You've been um, at levels of leadership um, that I would say, uh, you know, you've kind of hit the glass ceiling in lots of different uh, high level executive positions, mostly uh, male dominated kind of leadership positions but let's before we get into that let's tell a little bit about kind of your beginnings like um and uh so that people can get a get a context and, and understand your frame of thinking and, and the space that you grew up in so tell us a little bit about uh your upbringing and and a bit about you know what what kind of things you learned along the way early yeah so i actually grew up behind the iron curtain so i grew up in former soviet union uh, and I grew up in the environment where from very early on, I learned how to speak the truth to power. So I was lucky to be born um, in a family was, so where my, my granddad uh, used to be a senior executive in, um, well, in Soviet politics. So he was actually at some point the mayor of Tallinn and then a representative of Estonia in Moscow. And uh, my stepdad who raised me was one of the leading rocket scientists um, in literally rocket scientists that are running a big part of a Soviet peace program. And my mom, uh, a doctor. So, and I was the only child. So mm. be, being in that time of, type of the environment um, where you're thinking is challenged and, and I'm a little bit of the, well, quite a lot of the rebel, I would say. So it hasn't been always a smooth sailing. There was a lot of um, resistance sometimes from me and also there are a lot of expectations. So you know, one of the stories, one of the stories that probably, I didn't realize yet at that time how much it defined me then, when now, when I have been on the journey of human behavior, I realized how pivotal, like how important it actually was. Uh, because I was also quite a dreamy child. You know, I, I, I like looking in the window and dreaming about something. 
And so I was doing in the school where uh, we had an extensive German language. Mm. And, uh, and of course, it didn't contribute necessarily for my progress in the German, in the German <laughs> language itself. And Soviet education can be quite strict. And one day when I was around eight, my mom was being called into school. And then the one thing that I remember is walking back from that meeting that my mom had and the snow was falling. And I remember the snowflakes falling on my, on my skin. And I see my mom is crying. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what did this teacher tell my mom that had set her in that stage? And actually what the teacher asked, which I later find, found out, is whether my mom uh, had a birth trauma during my birth. So because... <laughs> because um, obviously my progress in German wasn't very satisfactory. <laughs> so, and, um, and I think that was a moment when my mom came and her rocket scientist husband said, well, no, Tatiana is not stupid and we're going to make her graduate with honors. So, and that was a journey where also my own rebel self kind of said, yeah, I'm going to prove to them. And of course I did have the support uh, of, um, yeah, of quite intellectual men in my life. And um, on the other hand, it's also created a lot of um, approaches and thinking about achievement, right? So because of course then I'm thinking, well, if I don't achieve, who am I? So of course, without that moment, I probably wouldn't end up where I was uh, in, in the leadership in the city and wouldn't have had that journey. On the other hand, also that moment created all this um, discovery, which I'm on right now, discovery of my authentic self and helping my clients to be on that journey. Because who are we without achievement and what actually achievement means? Because so often, I worked with a lot of executives who on the outside have a lot of success mm. and on the inside feeling quite empty and unfulfilled. So what actually success mean and what differentiates conventional success from true success and from being successful from success empty? I would, so I would think like coming, like, you know, like you're saying, growing up around the, behind the iron, iron curtain, like there are some assumptions that I would say, like I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. So I grew up on an island and the perception that people have of me as well is, is, is a lot different. So only child growing up in a upper middle-class um, kind of, I'm going to say more, you know, aristocratic potentially family. I'm going to assume, and you tell me Tatiana, because I think this is important that there was certain, there was certain, expectations of you relatively quickly or mm. early that was yeah. defining kind of the path you were going to take so tell me a little bit more about some of whether it's implicit or explicit expectations that you had um, growing up in, in the family you did yeah definitely definitely expectations expectations of uh, working as hard as one can at school expectation of uh, being good at maths. Well, and that one probably came to me quite easy uh, with maths. However, being, putting a lot of effort in, in, in probably a variety of subjects and um, 
and, and, and delivering results. And of course, um, I, I, remember, I remember my granddad told me, Tatiana, all this knowledge that you acquire, that, that, that's your biggest asset. Because you know, his, his family himself, you know, he, um, uh, he comes from Estonian family that actually during Soviet, at the beginning of Soviet Union, was sent from Estonia to Tajikistan. And uh, um, I think he was one of the four children. And uh, the, his parents died very quickly. It was like early 1920s, because it's of course such a change, you know, from Estonia to Tajikistan. And all the boys were put in different orphanages. Mm. So believe it or not, my granddad, when he grew up, he was super grateful to Soviet Union. And I asked him, I said, granddad, why? Do you know, your family was moved. And he said, Tatiana, Soviet Union gave me education. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so, and that's what I was raised with. I guess the sense of optimism, Do you know, yes, there are challenges in life, but we're going to overcome them. And education is the most important thing. So make sure you take the full opportunity of what uh, the country gives to you. So that whole value of, and I can think of my upbringing. So with my ancestry, it's, uh, you know, they moved to the Caribbean um, in the early 1900s or even 1800s and from India. So they came as indentured laborers from India. And I they believe some potentially on my mother's side from the Middle East. Um, and so in the islands, of course, as well, because it was a British colony, um, the, the, the one of the first values I remember learning is that education is power. Yeah. Right. Not unlike what you're saying about what your granddad learned after coming from Estonia, that in fact, you know, you have value when you are educated. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it means and, and it means you have to pay attention and it means you have to work to the hardest of your ability. So that's that's definitely was an expectation, and and there was always an expectation that I will go to university. Mm -hmm. right. My mom used to say to me at three years old, because uh, you know, of course the opportunities weren't there with my, with my parents. You know, they were smart people, but there wasn't the academic um, sorry the economic ability to go to university. Um, my dad went on further as he became an executive, but. Uh, my mom uh, became a nurse later on in life as well. But earlier on, that was not, there was not the capacity to be able to do that. And I remember quite, quite young thinking that um, and being told you were, well, you're going to go to university. I didn't even know what a university was at, you know, four or five years old. But I remember thinking uh, that thought process being something that obviously had been told to me relatively quickly. Um, and it was kind of like one of those things, did I even know what they did there? Probably not. But again, that whole imbuing of the, the beliefs that get put into you, which obviously a lot of it is very, very positive, but I guess the other part of it, which we're gonna talk more about is how do certain parts of you get locked off in the process, which is not a bad thing in certain areas of your life, absolutely. But in some other parts, like you talked about the little girl that loved staring out the window. And I'm curious about, you know, that space uh, that you would go to, you know, maybe German was the, 
um, the love of your life at a young age, but there must have been things that potentially I'd love to hear about. What, what kind of things did you find out about yourself as you as, as you kind of went on your journey and reconnected to that part of yourself? Mm. Yes, it's 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 this creative part, and it's and that's and that's this dreamy part. So at that time, for example, I really wanted to be. Um, I wanted to write a book, for example, right? And now I'm working on my book. And, and yet um, Russian language was one of my weakest subjects. So I remember having all this fantasy and all the stories which I put together and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, but I make so many spelling mistakes. <laughs> so, so, so I, and of course, everything, you know, the expectations are that you have to be really good at what you choose. So as a result, I almost, like, you know, almost that belief, nobody told me you cannot be a writer. Uh, it's it's almost was a result of uh, of this thinking of I have to be good um, at what I choose, and as a result, oh yeah, if I'm writing the spelling mistakes, I surely I cannot be a writer, right? So because mm -hmm. it has to be perfect, and now we all know that I ghost writers and you know spellings, whatever there is, you know, word uh, the check checking, and it's all okay, right? So right. so that's that, that's creative part and. Um, Yes, and also this ability to to mess up. And well, and and that then the permissiveness now, in, and we talk about this. So obviously, we'll talk a little bit about your kind of tenure as an executive. But um, I think as of late, maybe in the last maybe ten years or so, we talk more about feeling your way to success. That was not a concept per se that was openly discussed. And I think it's more permissive today, right? Like a failure way up to the top was not something that I learned as an executive in my twenties. No, no. <laughs> it was like, if you screw up, make sure it's not that big. So it's not going to impact things. So you can kind of, you know, bounce back from the mistake. But in today's day and age, we talk about failure as being such a key element to succeeding in whatever path that you're taking. That's true. And I still believe in a lot of organizations for sure in finance, it's still the subject which is um, which is not very welcomed, probably. I think, well, HR executives, uh, they understand that and some senior people that relate to that, but it's not the culture, I believe. So it's still, I see it in my clients when I start saying, well, Failure is the way. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> way to what? Losing a job, right? Because of course, some mistakes can be very costly, right? So if you if you are in charge of billions of money of dollars, right, you don't want to make a mistake. On one hand, on the other hand, if the recognition that we all make mistakes and that's a way to grow was more acceptable, then it might be that in some situations, the traders would speak about their wrong positions much earlier on. It might be that they would bring it to their attention with much bigger openness, and we might have been able then to avoid the crises which we had. So the... The perception of perfection, and, I, and I'm, I'm truly, you know, this is my thinking, and, and I, I can really understand it depending on the sector that you're in. If you're running, like you said, multi, a multinational, multi-billion dollar uh, company in finance, the difference of somebody not being microscopic could be detrimental. But the counter side of what you're saying is, 
that pe because people are petrified potentially to admit that there has been failures or there's patterns that would go against the strategic plan, people are less likely to come forward. And like you said, some of these huge crashes that we've experienced in the 80s and stuff like that with the bank industry or even in the US, what we saw, more than likely, if, if there was that ability to say, I know this is not, this is going to sound kind of out in left field. However, this is what I'm, I'm seeing here, or I know it's something we've never come up against, but this seems to be a reoccurring uh, theme. Then we might be able to circumvent things that, because you're allowing that person to be creative, to be outspoken, to, to, to potentially have possibilities and not feel like they're um, being viewed in a different a lens that's not conducive to looking a certain way, say in, in banking or in, um, you know, engineering or all those kind of, you know, left brain kind of specific industries um, yeah. where, you know, it's more, it's more definite. Whereas I think some of the more um, creative kind of environments, it's, it's, we allow that a bit more. Yes, exactly. And, and that's why the concept comes also if you look at the, at the corp in corporate world, more from the world of technology, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I, I think in this book, Trillion Dollars Coach, there is even example there uh, how the Google department, uh, one of the Google departments are actually celebrating when mistakes is made because, because then actually the people, the employees are paid even bigger bonuses because A, they tried something new and B, as soon as they realize that they are going the wrong way, they spoke up about it. Mm. So that's something that needs to be celebrated. Because really we're talking about creating a confidence, creating a confidence in people that will allow them to go to spaces that it's like a mind meld, right? If people can really um, think and be outside of the box and take a step into something, you're gonna go get to a, a like a, you're gonna be disruptive without a doubt for sure, but you could probably come up with some amazing things. Exactly, exactly. It's having the psychologically safe environment. That's uh, a mm -hmm. little bit of the buzzword, uh, but to have that environment where people can honestly express their point of view and all honestly speak up where they believe a mistake is made and stand up to, to so-called failure as, as something, as a path forward. For example, my own coach, he sends flowers to his team when they mess up, mm. right? So it's celebrating that. Of course, if we continue making the same mistake day in and day out, this is not something, you know, that's like everything to the extreme becomes you know, every strength of the extreme becomes a weakness. So when it's a mistake from which we learn, that's fantastic. What a great opportunity. So let's talk about the industries that you went into, right? So here you found, you learned the lesson about, you know, maybe I can't dream about maybe potentially being creative in certain realms as a little girl. So you kind of thought... I'm going to go and focus where I'm really good. And like you said, like your, your rocket science scientist father, obviously very left brain, very analytical, uh, math oriented, all that stuff. So you kind of somehow figured out things and then you learn the value of um, hard work pays off. 
And when I'm a good at a skill, if I get better, doors open for me. And that's exactly what started to happen. So tell us a little bit about where that took you on your path of leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I know we're going to get to the point where we talk about, um, you know, high achievement, but when there was something different that started to present itself for you. Mm. Yes, thank you. So it, it is interesting when you actually were saying it, what also came to me is that, yes, of course, um, it's, it's living into one's strength. And yet I didn't go and study maths. I went and studied international economic affairs. And, and that one of the, the first requirement was German. So I, I actually, actually, when you I circled was, back to the German again, I circled back to the German. Well, it was, it was the first foreign language. And for me, it was German. So I knew that I needed to be very good in German. And in fact, mm-hmm. the same teacher who made this comment, she came to my graduation and apologized because she heard me speaking, right? Mm. So, and that's also taught me a very important lesson that even if somebody perceives that you might be not good at something, actually, if you put effort in it, you can, you can become so good that you even go to the, one of the best universities uh, where this is a requirement and, and also even go and live in that country, right? So it is possible. So, so hard work was kind of, um, very big component and also actually now when I'm thinking back it's also ability to dream and uh, and for me one of them there were a couple crucial moments that opened opened the doors and one was actually when a scholarship from Germany came to select uh, us from the university to go and study in Germany and uh, the girls so they were like an our German group there were there were 13 of us that's already at university and there were three girls and 10 boys and all the boys were invited and the girls were told not to come. Mm. So because, yes, uh, because as my German teacher said at that time, well, you should be thinking about your personal life, right? Oh my gosh, I was furious. I was 18, (laughs) 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 getting married, right? So I thought, I'm going to prove that I can get a scholarship. And then I literally wrote so many letters to some, I, I think I, I went to the library and I, wrote, I literally found all the possible German foundations. And eventually I found there was one. I got so many no's, of course, talk about getting no's. And it, it didn't matter to me. And then eventually I got one fund, foundation that was prepared to sponsor, to finance me, to finance my study in Germany. So that was a very big moment. Again, like and you know, and sometimes later in life, I forgot this ability to get so many no's because once mm-hmm. you become accustomed to more easier ride, <laughs> actually, one becomes accustomed to more yeses as well. And sometimes one needs to relearn how, how to go for no's because there will be yes in, in the sea of no's. Right. So get, the, get, the, get the 50 no's out of the way first. And then you, by the 51st or 52nd, they're going to, you know, you're going to have worn them down potentially. And you're going to get to a yes, right? Which is a very male characteristic. Let's go, let's talk. So let's talk about, so you went on and uh, like you said, you were uh, pretty high up in the uh, German uh, banking industry. Um, so tell us a little bit about that, because I want to talk a little bit about that whole concept of um, that you're driven and you don't take no for an answer and how that kind of translated out into some of the steps um, and kind of those, the step ups that you were able to make 
in some of these environments. Mm, yes. So if somebody, uh, so, so when I um, was in Germany, there wasn't an, an, an opportunity to um, go and interview uh, with Dresden Bank. And actually, I remember people were telling me, oh, Tatiana, but in order to get that job at Dresden Bank, you need to finish your degree in Germany. I was like, well, I'm going to try to do it uh, with my actual Soviet degree. And again, there was there were many moments like this, you know, when somebody says, you know, and then when I got actually that job um, in this management management trainee pro, or management development program, I was the young, I was literally the youngest in that program because majority of Germans who were going for that program were already late twenties, and they never ever hired anybody from former Soviet Union for sure at that mm-hmm. time yet. So it they, they took a big risk on me. And, and so often there were moments then actually they had to prove uh, public interest of Germany, I think, to employ me at that time. And then there were a lot of difficulties for that. And again, I went and investigated the legal system and I uh, connected with the, actually uh, with the head of HR at Dresdner Bank at that time. And I explained to him how exactly, you know, where, where potential loopholes. So it, it, it was fascinating experience. Um, even going through that process. And of course, um, not being from the system, from the country, that's also probably gives um, a lot of permission because I think when we grow up in a particular system, uh, in a particular country, there is particular ways how we operate and we think, okay, this is a done thing, this is not done thing. So my huge advantage was that I came from totally different culture. So I, I just choose to be myself because I was not under influence of those rules. Mm-hmm. So as a result, and also because I, because by that time I was so unusual, um, it's, it's created many interesting meetings. So like, for example, I would work directly with a board member of the Dresdner Bank and, and the board members of the Dresdner Bank would be sitting in a separate building. So normally you have to be almost like, you know, mid-level executive to be able to speak to them. So it was unheard of that 22 years old girl or young woman would support a board member of Dresdner Bank in negotiations with Gazprom. Mm. And yet um, those opportunities serendipitously on one hand were created almost for me. And I think the difference is that when there was a moment, I would just go for that. And, and I remember a lot of my German colleagues and friends, they might not because, because they had all those memos, all those you know, rules in their head, right? That's so they had those, they had those uh, like memorized and you didn't get, they didn't quite figuratively didn't give you the memo. So you just got, kept going after whatever you wanted to at that point. Yes, yes. And I think this is, um, Almost this is a freedom um, and, and this is almost the gift from being an outsider. Of course, being an outsider creates a lot of challenges. But it also brings a lot of opportunities. Even looking at the accent, for example, right? Nobody could judge my German accent or my English accent because you know, nobody could place me where exactly I'm. Well, they know I come from somewhere like in Eastern Europe. But you know how what I mean to so them when people... When people connect with each other, there are certain particular biases, certain particular stories we tell ourselves. And if somebody's so different, there are advantages in that. So it was a, it really, to some degree, was a gift, the difference. 
or the way you perceived it, right? Again, be based on your mindset and kind of what you had learned was to work really hard, don't give up. And if if there's a shut door, there's probably a couple of others that you can try and keep trying. So that tenaciousness was something that I would say um, you had from a very young age. Yes, yes, exactly. And, pro, and, and actually uh, now when even speaking with you, I'm thinking the fact that academic achievement probably didn't come to me very early on that easily you know so it's, it was more secondary school when i really flourished rather than primary school that's probably helped develop those features right right so let's let's talk a little bit about so um you know you have went on and did some amazing things um like you said at dresna bank and 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 in bank in finance um in your executive career so what what created the shifts for you? Like at some point you may start to make shifts from being an executive at that high level um, to be doing what you're doing today. So tell us kind of what right. that path was and, and go back again. I, I, you know, I'm curious about the story about the authentic self and, and where it brings you today. Yes, sure, sure. And it has been a long journey because uh, Dresden Bank was at the beginning and then, you know, I, I left it all behind and I went to the United States still in pursuit of my really American dream and, and you know, the American business school and then, you know, the many other banks later. And I remember when I was um, at this business school and it shows also the journey, I literally wouldn't go to classes if they didn't have formals in them. So if we go to like 90s, that's, well, I had to go to human behavior class to get a pass and I would do that, but I couldn't get it. I was like, come on, it's such a soft subject. <laughs> like, you know, give me a black shawls formula, right? Why are they teaching us something like human behavior, you know? Um, and, and it's interesting because the more I progressed on my journey, the more I realized that actually those skills that I described at that time as soft skills, they are the most important skills mm -hmm. in life. So because you know, no one would enter, uh, would enter banking uh, in those positions at this level without, without knowledge of maths. That's almost like prerequisite, right? Or, or without like a you know, certain level of IQ and, and education. However, what really differentiates people who who become inspiring leaders mm -hmm. and from, from producers, right, is, is this emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. and, and then what is much more further than that is th that could create um, a certain conventional success and give us achievement. However, if we are not aligned with our own mission, with the impact that we want to create in the world, and eventually the sense of emptiness will set in. So for me, um, so I, I enjoyed my, I, I really enjoyed my journey. And actually I remember um, in my more later days of investment banking, when I was working on a trading floor with Namura, I, I, I really, I was getting so much buzz um, from closing the trades and, you know, adrenaline. And yet one day, Adrenaline was gone. It just disappeared, right? And it felt to me that I was trading like potatoes and oranges rather than 
um, selling 100 million loan here and there. <laughs> so, and yet I was so terrified of making a change because I worked so hard for where I was and I was one of very few women uh, in the front office who was actually working four days a week. In fact, I was promoted to manager director while working four days a week, which was unheard of um, in our organization. So I thought, oh my gosh, if I make any change, that's scary. I should be grateful for what I have. Mm -hmm. And for a couple of years, I was literally, you know, that's almost like a, the other side of gratitude. That's what, you know, I tell my clients, yes, practice gratitude. Gratitude is super important, but make sure it's a gratitude of creation. Make mm -hmm. sure it's something where you're grateful to yourself for, for what you created. Not something what you are afraid of losing. And, um, and then at some point I realized, yeah, I'm, I'm losing the joy. And I'm not, nothing is worth that. I want to have the joy back. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking what actually does give me joy. And of course I did have opportunity in my, in my journey in banking to coach, even to coach sometimes my manager and, you know, and to coach my team without knowledge of what, what exactly coaching is. But then I, I was fascinated by why is it that some, some people have on the outside, everything, right? And, and then when I get to know them more, they have so much emptiness and pain inside. And then, you know, this realization that money doesn't remove that and actually position doesn't remove that. And actually um, achieving certain level of success, it just creates different types of problems. And the, the, the more senior you become, the lonelier it is at the top, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's connecting with this authentic self. Mm -hmm. it's, it's realizing what actually my needs, what actually I'm going for, and then creating from that place. Being honest, being honest with oneself if, uh, about all needs, what, what I'm creating and what I'm communicating and what actually gives me the sense of belonging and sense of connection. So how and did you do that? How, how did you, you know, because you go into a, high-paced um, environment where, you know, like you're right, like you would be coaching, but I would think um, the kind of coaching, was it more on the business end or was it that you were doing overall coaching or you didn't, at that point, you were assisting people in ways that was making them get connected. And that's when you started to recognize that you wanted something different. How did you kind of start to listen? Right. So, it, it, and of course it wasn't, I didn't have a position of a coach at all, or uh, it, it wasn't even called coaching. It's, it's, for me, it was that, um, well, I connect with people well. Mm. And sometimes some people um, would reach out to me and we would have a conversation and say, I was working on a trading floor and there is a relationship with investment banking. And there was one particular manager who opened up to me and uh, with his challenges, actually both in his private life and with a relationship with investment banking. And, and, and I'm really grateful to, to, to him because it's really made me look deeper in a human behavior. And eventually I, I asked him, I said, can you please work with a life coach? When, you know, when, when the boundaries were a little bit, I felt actually taking me in slightly different direction from my role at the time. So 
but it's intrigued my real interest in human behavior and in psychology. And, you know, I was messing it up big time myself, right? <laughs> so it's not like um, I was just scratching the surface tiny bit. I remember I was in a lot of pain, right? So I, I, was, I, 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 I wasn't having adrenaline anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like that I was completely flourishing on the outside it looked quite nice mm -hmm. but on the inside there was a lot of pain so it's um it, it's 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 helped me to get to go on that journey mm -hmm. right it helped me to make that step eventually and to say do you know what i am going to make the change in my life and probably if i knew then what i know now and where I try to support my clients, I could have made potentially a different decision, right? Because mm -hmm. there are different ways, like it's not for everyone to live in an organization because I, I tell my clients, look, if, if all people who are connected with, with themselves leave the positions of power, it doesn't serve anyone. We want people in power. We want people in finance and power of technology, the ones who are driven by compassion, the ones who are driven by um, creating the impact in the world. Because then really those industries can start serving us as humanity rather than the other way around. Right? Sure. So for executives listening, right? I'm sure there's people thinking, oh, <laughs> she's kind of reading my mind or I felt like that for a while. Or I like to your point, we're not suggesting that everybody go off here and, you know, um, quit or, or you know you may not be you may stay in the industry that you're in but what I hear is that what you're suggesting is connection to yourself to create alignment for whatever path you're going to take I, I think that's what you're you're suggesting exactly exactly it's connecting with oneself and all and and understanding all needs understanding also asking oneself okay how do I actually how do I actually cre create a sense of belonging Right. Mm -hmm. So because we all as humans and have two like probably main needs, we want to be free to express ourselves and we want to belong. Mm -hmm. Right. And ideally, ideally, we can belong by being fully ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's a dilemma. Right. And that happens whether you are senior executive or whether you're doing anything else. Right. So I'm actually asking oneself, what actually does give me a sense of belonging? When did I feel connected to my colleagues last? Right. And what do I need to do for that? What do I need to ask for, right? And, um, and, and how can I give opportunity to people to ask me for something what they need? Right? So I think if, if a lot of people are in the same space, right? And they're disconnected, um, and they're not connected to their true authentic self as a, as a leader, they're in turn going to impact the people around them, right? 100%. So, you know, if you're unconscious about your own needs to your point, like you said, when you realized I'm on the trading floor and I'm not getting, I'm not getting that surge of energy and the enjoyment I used to, you recognize that something had shifted within you where you were not no longer connected to that space in yourself that brought you the joy that you would have had from trading. And at that point, you started to take some steps to, to, to understand it or to do something different. 
Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. exactly. Okay. And that takes courage, right? So I remember uh, when I heard like tiny acts uh, of kindness and I thought, how about tiny acts of courage? <laughs> right? Because um, I remember when I was working on a trading floor, I thought, oh, the courage is for people who, um, for doctors, for nurses, for um, people who save our lives, right? For um, fire brigade. And now I'm thinking, no, courage can be at anywhere. Like, how about courage for speaking up for for a colleague who is being uh, who is bullied? How about courage for saying that something is wrong? How how about courage of for speaking up for your own needs? So, for the CEOs that might be listening, or this, you know, people of the C-suite in certain industries um, that may not have the capacity, I, sh- I shouldn't say they don't have the capacity, maybe their industry has always had the backdrop where there hasn't been this permissiveness. Um, and we know in this day and age, more than ever, Tatiana, that we want we want to experience the people we're working with. We want the leader, the leader has to create outcomes. He has to report to his boards. Um, profit sharing, all that stuff still has to get taken care of, right? So you you, you can't be authentic and not have outcome because <laughs> we're going to have a lot of friendly people and nothing's going to get done. <laughs> we need both, mm-hmm. right? But if you're trying to create that shift and you're like recognizing that your industry um, hasn't had that context in the past, mm-hmm. what are some small courageous things that these people at the C-suite can start doing to start making the shift. Yeah, that's, that is a very good point. I think so often even understanding of outcome is very different. And so often there, there haven't been honest conversations. You know, that's like uh, even to have that discussion with the team, say, okay, actually, what is our mutual goal? Mm. Not the goal of marketing department or finance department. What actually our mutual goal is as a team? And then actually creating that environment of trust that people can express truly what, what actually that goal is. You know? and, then, and then actually expressing their points of view about whether we are on the right path, honestly. Because how often the elephant in the room is not expressed. I was in the meetings where I remember people keep on like talking about, oh, we are going to increase... Um, our market share by so-and-so, like, you know, we are going to, like this year we have been trading 5 million, next year it will be 8 million. And everybody's like, yes, that's what we're going to do. I'm like, okay, wait, wait a minute, where is it going to come from? Is it going to, are you going to get a market share from someone at that extent? Or is the market going to grow at that extent? You know, And I'm mm-hmm. simplifying it, of course, uh, to make it clearer. But so often people are afraid to ask basic questions because they're afraid that they might come across oh, as silly or, you know, I should have known it before. And actually to create the environment, if you're a CEO, where people can ask those silly questions because they are the most probably valuable questions. Because from those questions, you also can understand whether everybody is really on board. And you, people can only commit when they, able, they were able to express their point of view. And actually, yeah, for sure. But I think what happens is sometimes, and I think of my, some of the corporate environments that I've been in, 
and you have people talking about expectations or, or maybe like you said, projections and everybody has the, you know, water, you know, cooler talks. And then you go into these meetings and the same people that you're thinking, Oh my God, you were, you were saying the exact same things I was. And all of a sudden somebody speaks up and nobody says anything. And you're like, was I just, were we just all talking about the same things where we saw this and this, and this wasn't going to be possible. This is going to fall apart or this is not realistic. All of a sudden the courage escapes the meeting rooms. Mm. Yeah. You know? So it's interesting that you're talking about small acts of, acts of courage because it, it is so true because it's almost like people are afraid to speak up based on the, the context or, or the level of stress that they have. And I can think of multiple times in different environments that I've been in where you're like, what happened to everybody? They were all ran for the hills. Yes. And that's why it takes time and it takes work. And it's, I always say it takes work starting with a leader and then it's systemic approach to the team. That's why the teamwork is also so important because the system would carry a lot of trauma as well. It's not just individuals. You know, if the organization went through a lot of redundancy, mm -hmm. there will be that type of energy will be there. There's so often, also I remember myself, you know, when I joined Namur, for example, uh, there was a person there who was there longer than me and I joined at the same level as that person. However, I was given much sooner some of the bigger accounts. And actually now with what I know, acknowledging that she was there before me would have created very different environment, like acknowledging of the timeline, which is not done. And there are some fantastic workshops that we run to, to do that. It releases the energy. It's, it helps people to create a psychological safe environment, right? And, and that takes time. That takes work. It takes one small step at a time. And as you say, courage escapes the room because fear is one of the most contagious emotion. And even acknowledging that, you know, it's like labeling that. It's already, the, the neuroscience has proven that when we label our emotions, the cortisol drops. Mm -hmm. Name it to tame it, like they say, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about... Um, energy. And I know I've, I've taken, you know, I've taken a lot of your time already. And what are some tips that you can give people just to um, align? Because I, I clearly that's what you do as the chief ex uh, energy officer, you align people. Um, and I would say with their meridians, with their, their centering, you know, there's lots of things that we, like I know that I do when I coach, you know, uh, individuals and organizations to get them centered because that false self or that shadow self is often there. That's the part that, you know, we bring along and we second guess ourselves, but we don't oftentimes take, take the time that's needed. So what, what are some, you know, steps that you might be able to leave with people to start thinking about, or maybe even a step that they could take, say, within the next 24 hours to start this process? Sure, sure. There are some simple things. It's, it's realization that when, when we are triggered, whether it's um, 
somebody says something or some event is happening, actually the first thing would get switched on is our lizard brain, right? Our oldest brain. And that's, and, and that's uh, as, as you know, gets switched on so fast, right? Because, because actually our lizard brain doesn't differentiate whether it's an animal running after us or whether it's our boss at something uh, unfortunate that triggered us. It's the same thing. The only thing what lizard brain wants to know is am I going to survive? And um, is my offspring surviving, right? So, and, and it needs to be very fast, right? And before even thoughts or beliefs appears, there are particular sensations in our body that happen. And actually connecting, starting to recognize those sensations just literally thinking back of the moment when we were triggered in our personal life or professional life, thinking, where did I feel it in my body? Mm -hmm. Did I feel it in the chest? Did I feel it in my stomach? Mm -hmm. Because once we recognize that, then we can know, okay, it's my lizard brain. Now I can do something about that. Now I need to switch on my prefrontal cortex. And of course, a simple tool is breathing, but sometimes when we're in that situation, it's difficult to breathe, right? I'm like, oh, so. Yeah, shallow breath and, and less oxygen to the brain and confusion. <laughs> and then that becomes a reality. And it, it, it tips us back to every time we've kind of felt to that state, which kind of tips us in the wrong direction. So really starting to consciousness and awareness, right? And anything that you could do to start to do that. Now, I know you do phenomenal work and you have um, some programs that you're running. Uh, for anybody, um, if you wanted to tell them about it and if they wanted to connect with you, um, tell them where they can reach you. Yes. So uh, I hang out on LinkedIn quite a lot, a little bit on Facebook, but uh, mostly on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, there is my website, www.tatianaceoneword.com. Uh, and um, we run programs together uh, under Adapter Brand. So it's adaptaa.co.uk. So we actually run a program for, for leaders. Well, actually people at different stages uh, of their leadership because diversity creates the biggest insight, which we call amazing humans. So if you're interested, come and explore it. I'm happy to have a discovery call. We also run program for inspiring women peer coaching program. It has been very popular with private equity funds and banks. So come and uh, we can have discovery call and have a conversation and see um, how we could potentially can support you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think uh, what a fascinating story. And, you know, for any executive that has kind of hardened, like you said, if you're still in that space and you're enjoying it, that's one thing. But maybe potentially there could be things that you could be doing just to get reconnected to yourself in a way that allows you to take better care of yourself. It doesn't mean that you may be in the wrong fit, but if you're feeling that, um, I call it the nudging inside that says something's not right, that inner space that you can go into that Tatiana talks about is the space that has the, it has the answers. But, you know, sometimes you're in, environments that are diametrically opposed to you slowing down. So you really, really have to make a concerted effort to slow, to learn and to listen so that you can make the changes that you may need to, to be reconnected to your authentic self. And then eventually what happens is when you learn to listen on that level, 
the answers slowly come and you have experts like Tatiana to help you along the way. Thank you very much, Roxanne. So thank you for your time, for everybody. Uh, if you're wanting any information on authentic leadership uh, for yourself and your teams, you can reach me at RoxanneDurhodge.com. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit RoxanneDurhage.com slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.